Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello, my name is Stephen Schaefer, and I'm excited to bring to you another wonderful topic. Today's guest is Dr. Adrian Lau. Dr. Lau earned his undergraduate, master's degree, and PhD in physiotherapy, the latter of which focused on pain neuroscience education, from the University of Stellenbosch in Cape Town, South Africa. He is an adjunct faculty member at St. Ambrose University and the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where he teaches pain science. Dr. Lau has taught both throughout the United States and internationally for 25 years, and has authored and co-authored over 100 peer-review articles. Of note, he is the director of the Therapeutic Neuroscience Research Group, an independent collaborative initiative studying pain neuroscience. Finally, Dr. Lau is also senior faculty, pain science director, and vice president of faculty experience for Evidence in Motion. We invited Dr. Lau to the podcast today to talk about his recent 2022 AMP conference presentation, which was titled, Frozen Shoulder Has a Brain. This promises to be an interesting topic. So, without any further delay, let's get to the interview. Dr. Lau, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me this morning. Excellent. And we are very excited to have you here today. And speaking of which, let's dive right into the presentation that you gave at the recent conference. And to begin, can you give us a brief overview explaining why, in the case of a diagnosis like adhesive capsulitis, the shoulder has a brain? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, we we came up with that title just to maybe be a little provocative, but the data would back us. The easy answer today is all joints have a brain. Orthopedic manual therapy, we often think very nociceptive based, right? Joints, muscles, tendons, ligaments, capsules, etc which is not bad. They're highly innervated structures and they play a major role in a pain experience. But as we become more aware of pain science and things like neuroplasticity, bioplasticity, altered body maps in the brain, central sensitization and nociplastic pain, it would make sense that they're behind something like a frozen shoulder or an adhesive capsulitis, that there must be a brain that controls things like motor control, pain experience, um, even sympathetic, parasympathetic function, etc. And it's based on a series of research projects that's beginning to look at these more complex orthopedic conditions that there must be something else that's driving it because, you know, we know we take a patient with <laughs> a frozen shoulder and we uh, mobilize him and we stretch him and we get, you know, two degrees better and there's, there's got to be more. And I think that is the impetus behind it. Thank you for that explanation. And I really love your statement, all joints have a brain. That's very consistent with my clinical practice. And of course, I've been trying to keep up to date on all the pain neuroscience and all the different details that come along with that as they relate to clinical practice. So I really like hearing it put in those words. And speaking of which, one of those keywords or maybe buzzwords that I remember from your presentation was smudging. Can you talk to us for a moment about what is smudging? And what evidence do we have that it occurs in people with frozen shoulder? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, smudging is, it's kind of interesting, right? With all this incredible science and research and brain scans, 
that they use is a, I would consider a simple term like smudging, but we know that a person's body is represented in their brain in various sensory areas, primarily in this primary somatosensory cortex. So that's the one we know the best. All clinicians know that one, the one that Penfield described in 1937 and has since been updated. But your body is represented in the brain. And these maps that we have in our brain, they are biologically, genetically coded. You are born with those maps. As I always tell the students, you know, when you, when you, if you're born without a hand, there's still a hand in the brain. But those maps are dynamic. They shift. They can get bigger. They can get smaller. They can be sharper. They can be less sharp, or as we call it, smudging, based on use. This idea of use it or lose it has been around for a very long time, and it's now beginning to show up more in the orthopedic realm, if you will. But smudging basically refers to this idea that if a body part isn't used optimally, normally, if you will, the map in the brain is not that sharp. And so if we ask a person with persistent pain to look at a picture of a shoulder, a left shoulder or right shoulder, they struggle to identify is it left or right. By the way, when you ask them to color in a body chart around that area for pain, it's pretty much, for a lack of a better term, all over the place. So there's this body recognition struggle that we have. And on the pain side, the brain basically gets concerned about it. Um, when the brain cannot find its own body parts, it's actually a stressor. And one of the best ways it can protect that area until it can figure out what's happening is to turn on sensitivity or pain, if you will. As far as the research goes, there's two ways to look at it this morning. One is we can take it to a research lab and do brain scan studies. The problem, unfortunately, is these scanning studies are very expensive and they tend to happen in big centers with big complex things like back pain, right? We spend billions on back pain. Frozen shoulders, not as much. So we don't have direct research in that area. On the clinical side, however, we do have data. And so how does a clinician check for smudging? It would be things like two-point discrimination, laterality or left-right judgment tasks, sensory discrimination. And there's growing evidence in that area that the maps are not as healthy in frozen shoulders or adhesive capsulitis compared to normal healthy controls. So that's how we look at it. We basically ask, is this shoulder well represented in the brain or not? And if it's not, it may initiate or maintain a pain state. Excellent. Thank you for that description. And very importantly, thank you for mentioning those clinically applicable tests. If anyone's not familiar with those particular tests, then I obviously recommend that they go look into them and figure out how to implement them. Because as you mentioned, a lot of the studies use expensive imaging, et cetera, which just isn't really at our fingertips in order to make a clinical diagnosis, et cetera. And one technique that I know has been discussed on and off for years that I myself have implemented in the clinic, but I haven't heard you mention yet, is mirror therapy. How has mirror therapy been used to treat patients with adhesive capsulitis? And what type of results have we seen from that type of therapy? Yeah, so for, you know, for the listeners today, uh, mirror therapy is part of the graded motor imagery protocol. So graded motor imagery is a series of techniques we would use to basically remap these smudges in the brain. And that includes things like laterality, training people on left and right, and um, uh, their sensory discrimination, sharp, dull, 1.2 point. Uh, motor imagery, um, if you want it, most basic would be visualization. But mirror therapy tends to be towards the end stages that we use a mirror to trick the brain. And many people are familiar with mirror therapy for hand pain, for CRPS, etc. 
it's been used in frozen shoulders. So, so there's a couple of things out there. Number one, um, you know, there's a really cool case study that Eric Sawyer at University of Colorado, Denver with Paul Minkin, um, myself and Louis Puntadura was on, um, where a lady showed up with shoulder pain. She had all the characteristics of smudging, if you will, with laterality, two-point discrimination. And in her protocol, there was some mirror therapy. Um, we did a study a couple of years ago, about two years ago, I think now, three years maybe, where we took a convenient sample of patients walking into physical therapy with shoulder pain and limited range of motion, not specific frozen shoulders, and we use a mirror, which is one of these stand-up mirrors in the clinic, which most clinics would have, placing the involved arm, the one that is, that is hurting, the one that is um, limited range of motion, behind the mirror and raising the other one up. And immediately following, we had a 14 degrees um, increase in forward inflection and significant reductions in things like fear and pain, et cetera. And we have been able to peel out of that, and that's what I presented at the AOMT conference, a subgroup, I think it was a seven or eight patients that have frozen shoulder, and they had very similar results. And so, um, you know, the problem with frozen shoulders in a research perspective is there's not an overabundance of them. That's why researchers do research on back pain or neck pain because they're, they're everywhere. And so that's where the mirror therapy fits in. There's a group of scientists in Spain, um, Enrique Lodge and his team has done some work, um, which I have helped them a little bit with. So they're, they're, it's beginning to show up. Mirror therapy can be quite helpful, especially for those that are very fearful to move. They would tend to do well as an, it's just another strategy to maybe ease some of the discomfort, ease some of the pain and sensitivity as we engage in some of these actual physical movements, if you will. So I think for some people, the concept of using a mirror with a hand is probably a lot easier to, I guess, visualize, et cetera, for clinical practice. But the shoulders are relatively close together, and they're both pretty close to the axial skeleton. So can you give us a little bit more of a description of what that looks like in a clinic and how you get a patient with a diagnosis like frozen shoulder to use the mirror, like where are they standing in relation to the mirror, et cetera, so that they can see the image and perform the movement at the same time? Yeah, it's a good question. So yeah, it's pretty simple. So what we do is the way we've done it, I'm not saying it's the way, but the way we've done it and published is so we'll have a patient sit in one of those clinical little um, stools, the ones that we tend to scoot around in a clinic because it gets you a little bit lower. So they sit on that little stool and then we, we put one of these rolling mirrors basically between their legs. And then they take the involved arm. Let's say my right arm is the painful one that's limited. And then I would lean slightly forward and put it behind the standing mirror. I will take my left arm and slide it forward. So both my arms basically are reaching out in front of me. I would lean to the left so I can see my left arm projecting in the mirror. So basically, the reflection would look as if I'm looking at my right arm. And then what we do is we just gently raise the left arm all the way up as far as we can, which is easy. That's the uninvolved arm. But for the brain, it looks as if I'm raising the right arm. During this process, you know, in the research projects, we tell people just gently breathe and breathe because it can actually be quite provocative to see this very painful limb that you've been struggling with to actually go all that high because you're associating, you know, full flexion with pain. So you go up, nice breathing, get to the top linger for a second or two, and then slowly bring it back down, take a deep breath, and then you basically sit back to get away from it and take a deep breath. That's one repetition. And then you lean forward and repeat it. And in the studies we've done, we've just literally done 10 repetitions. The treatment's three minutes. 
Uh, we did no follow-ups. You know, we didn't send people home with it. Those would be great opportunities for more research. These were just exploratory studies. The home program version is pretty cool, actually. We take um, simple mirrors, which is about 12 by 12 inches mirrors. And these are plastic mirrors, by the way. They're not very heavy. And you can go to any place in your house and where there's a wall that makes an angle and you can stick them against the wall and do the same thing. As you lean forward, you can put your arm out in front of you. And then as you look to the mirrors, it looks as if the other arm is projected, even though that arm is next to your side. And that would be an easy way for somebody to do it at home as a treatment. Um, but yeah, that's how we would do it and have done it in our studies. That's spectacular. Thank you for the clarification. And as we know from the evidence that's out there, this isn't just a central nervous system topic. For example, we know that in the local tissues, there can be nerve growth into the area, and then also histological changes can occur with diagnoses like frozen shoulder. That having been said, these changes, again, are related back to the central nervous system. Can you tell us about that process and how it relates to this diagnosis in particular? Yeah, good question again. You know, it, it's tricky. Uh, we do know from histological studies, um, various different studies have shown us that there is nerve growth in the area. It's important for our listeners to know today that when nerves grow, they tend to grow a little faster than they actually myelinate, if you will. So many of these nerve sprouts are a little bit unmyelinated, which makes them quite sensitive. Um, they play a significant role in inflammation. And you know, I, you know, I was taught years ago by my mentors that there's nothing that wakes up the nervous system more than inflammation. So, so that, that's something that always sits in the back of my mind. So it drives this inflammatory cascade. We have immune molecules in the area that is driving it. If, you, if, if any of the listeners want to go read some amazing, you know, write-up of peripheral neuropathic pain from Anina Schmidt's work, she wrote a really cool paper with um, Bob Nee and with uh, Michelle Kapiteris a few years ago about neuropathic pain, kind of the latest thought process. And we know with, these, with any of these nerves, there is a neuroinflammatory process. And what it really does on a clinical level, it increases nerve sensitivity. So the nerves become increasingly sensitized. And so as you rightfully commented in the beginning, um, it's not just a peripheral process, right? So when these nerves become increasingly sensitized, their discharge into the central nervous system is accelerated. And so, yeah, they hammer into the central nervous system. The part that very few therapists often talk about is the idea that nerves also fire the other way. They fire bidirectional. And when they fire down towards the shoulder or the tissues, they can actually drive an inflammatory process um, in that area as well. So it's a there is a very definite peripheral neuropathic component to it. I'd be the first one to tell you, we don't know a lot about it. It's, it's probably relatively speculative based on two worlds that are colliding, the, the research showing there is nerve growth and work like Anina Schmidt's work to talk about neuroinflammation. But there's definitely a peripheral nerve component with it um, that we see in the clinic as well. But again, peripheral nerve talks to central nerve, talks to the brain. And so it fits into this paradigm of the talk we gave. Perfect. And thank you for that reference. As is always the case, I will make sure in the show notes to link to anything you mentioned during the podcast so that our listeners can easily find it. And one of the things about what you just said that really sticks with me, and this is something I'm always educating my patients on, and that is that local inflammatory process. It really does light up and trigger the nervous system. And part of the reason I think it's so important here is that Adhesive capsulitis is actually a truly inflammatory diagnosis. I know we tend to label lots of things as being an itis, or at least we 
do historically and now as we move forward with more knowledge, we're starting to rename different diagnoses to reflect the fact that they're not actually inflammatory. But this is one of those cases where not only is it inflammatory, but it seems to maybe even be more aggressively inflammatory than other conditions. Yeah, it's you know it's a good comment. Um, we know that all the work on tendons and tendonitis and the tendinopathies, and you know if you look at Jill Cook's work and Khan's work, um, you're absolutely spot on. Um, there is very much an inflammatory process going on, but it's it's neuroinflammation. I think is also something we need to think about um, as a very relevant part of this process. And we've already mentioned that these individuals are undergoing central sensitization. Can you speak a little bit further to that and some of the evidence that we have that indicates that this isn't just a shoulder diagnosis, but also that the central nervous system is really being ramped up in terms of an excitability state? Yeah, I, you know, central sensitization is not something we can scan or do a blood work or a nerve conduction test. And the current best evidence would tell us for central sensitization, we need to do a cluster. If you look at Keith Smart's work, and it's now becoming very, um, it is kind of reborn, if you will, in the medical literature, the pain mechanisms or pain phenotyping between nociceptive, peripheral neuropathic, and central. Central sensitization is a cluster. And if you look at the cluster, it is things like disproportionate pain, which fits beautifully within frozen shoulder, right? Especially in a certain phase of it where they have disproportionate pain, small movement really hurts or light touch really hurts. They have diffuse palpation tenderness. So now you palpate around the shoulder and yeah, they're tender, but the pain, as you palpate further down the arm, it's even sensitized, maybe towards the scapula or the neck. So it's, if you will, a little bit of a spreading process. There's, you know, aggravating and easing factors is diffuse as well. So everything hurts. It's not just flexion, it's extension, it's abduction, it's external rotation. By the way, it could be thinking about flexion. And then it brings in psychosocial issues. And for us as manual therapists, Psychosocial issues will pertain to things like fear avoidance, catastrophization, and depression. There is evidence to prove that these patients have higher rates of fear avoidance of things like fear avoidance belief questionnaires, damper scale of kinesophobias. Pain catastrophization, I'm not 100% sure it has actually been tested as much with these patients. And then depression as well. Those are areas we should be looking at. But if you look at the profile, they would fit very easily into the central sensitization bucket, if you will. I would argue there's a subgroup that would sit in the peripheral neuropathic bucket, and there would be a subgroup that sits in the nociceptive bucket. And that is why this pain phenotyping thing is very intriguing. But pertaining to your question today, no doubt that if we took 100 people today with frozen shoulder at whatever phases we catch them, there will be a subgroup that meets the criteria, the clinical criteria to fit into the central sensitization bucket. And we need to evaluate and treat them as such and not as a tissue problem only, if you will. Wonderful. Thank you for that. It was a great and thorough review. And now moving on to what is always the most important question for many of us, and that is, based on what we know about frozen shoulder in the brain, what are your practical recommendations for clinicians when they're trying to manage this diagnosis in the clinic? Obviously, we can see that you think this is more than just a joint mobilization situation for a stiff shoulder. You know, what do you want to see people do in order to give the best, most effective and efficient care possible to their patients? I think the um, you know, conversation we just had is a great place to start. I think we need to build a better profile of these patients. We need to become more aware of what's happening. And when patients with frozen shoulder walk in, a battery of tests that includes things like fear avoidance, belief questionnaire or TSK, tamper scale of kinesophobia, pain catastrophization scale 
even a central sensitization inventory, depression scale, those should become part of the normal battery of intake form screening tools. So, you know, when a patient walks in, we give them paperwork and I get it. There's a lot of paperwork and et cetera. But, you know, maybe after visit number one, as you get to know the patient, do your interview, do your evaluation, you send them home with a couple of these forms. So you can build a profile and say, you know what, where are they? Are they really tissue-based? Which that's no big deal. That's your normal standard, one of the more um, adhesive capsulitis that is just good old stiff tissue. Is there a peripheral neuropathic component to it or is there central? Um, we can then very definitely have therapists start getting into the habit of having people quickly check laterality. You know, there, there are all kinds of apps. There's the flashcards from the NOI group that, um, you know, in our clinic, it's standard. Patients walk in, we give, them a, we give them an iPad that has the laterality tests on it. They quickly take it. 60 seconds later, we know, are, you know, are you normal or not? It's, there are cutoff values. And then two-point discrimination is truly making its way back into orthopedics, for us at least, on the pain side. And these are simple things that I think therapists can do. The one I would also argue real quick, um, uh, you know, body charts, how people color a body chart has dropped out of favor because of things like electronic medical records, right? You cannot draw on the computer, so we, don't, we just took it out. We now have data to prove that how a person colors a body chart can tell us a lot of what's happening. And by just asking somebody, can you just show me where you hurt? If they can draw very precise around that shoulder and the deltoid and around the area, they probably have a relatively sharp map, but if they color the whole area, even outside or whatever, it may be an early indication that, you know what, maybe I should check some, some laterality or maybe I should check a little bit of um, two-point discrimination, even sensory, sharp, dull, just grab the old, you know, pencil and, and, and a paper clip and, you know, sharp, dull and quickly check the area. How acutely are they aware of it? I think these simple, simple little quick interventions and, and tests can, can drive us in a different direction at least for a subgroup of these patients. And they're not complicated. That's the best advice I would probably tell people, thinking, you know, on this line of no susceptible towards peripheral neuropathic, towards central, where are they? Because we got to treat them very different. And out of all of the available options, what types of things are you interested in prescribing for the patient to complete as part of a home program? Well, it depends on what bucket they're in, right? <laughs> If they're in the nociceptive tissue-based bucket, then, you know, there's all the work has to be focused on their tissue. So stretching and, you know, all those kind of mechanical inputs. If they're on the neuropathic pathway, the middle bucket, if you will, I would definitely make sure I add in some neurodynamics techniques, be it even the opposite side in the straight leg raise, just getting the nervous system a little, a little bit of a move as well. But if it's a central sensitization pathway, you know, we can definitely start adding things. I mean, if you want to, on the one side, you can start adding things like mindfulness-based stress reduction, breathing, relaxation, etc. But I would definitely start moving closer towards things like radio motor imagery, laterality, where they would basically, they could do something like taking a magazine and say, you know, they, say they have a right frozen shoulder and say, you know what, here's a magazine, grab a marker, and then just every right shoulder you see, just mark it. And they just page through it, like, oh, here's one, turn it. They can see a person they can see if it's left or right, and then they circle it. It's a very cheap, easy way for people to work on laterality. That's one way we can, if they want to, they can get an app and work through the app. The mirror therapy, as I described, is a great way to do it. We teach family members sensory discrimination. You know, a, a loved one can go sharp and dull around the area. So there's various strategies to simple, easy ways to work on mapping at home. Maybe in the clinic, we work on the stuff we can work on, like manual therapy, but they can do some of these techniques at home. 
I love those ideas, and I hope people are, or perhaps will in the future, incorporate them into their clinical practice. That having been said, Dr. Lau, this has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you for your amped presentation, and thank you for coming on the podcast to share this topic with our audience. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was, it was a blast in San Diego. I hope I see everybody in St. Louis. Thank you for having me. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.